we're working our way through the book of John. Uh, we are in John 1. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 14. If you want to go ahead and turn there. John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think of Luke 2. All right? Think of Matthew 1. Think of these where a child is born this day in the city of David and the glory shone around them. The proclamation, his name is Emmanuel, which literally means God is with us. Think of that. Think of Christmas here. And the word became flesh. Jesus himself is the word. That's what we unpacked last week. Jesus is the word. And he became flesh and he dwelt or tabernacled. He, he came in. He, he brought down the separation that was between us and him, us and God. He, he crushed that wall of hostility so that he could dwell with us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, and this is John the Baptist, who's a different John, the author, okay, the apostle, the disciple, the one who is writing this, the best friend of Jesus. He's saying John the Baptist, a different John, witnessed about him, testified about Jesus, and cried out, this was he. This Jesus here is, is the one that I said, he who comes after me. Remember this? When I said that there's going to be somebody come after me that ranks before me, because he was before me, even though I was born first, he still is preeminent. He is before all things. That Jesus, that's the one I was talking about. So he's quoting John here. And then, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And the way that's written there is literally Jesus. All right, look at this. No one has ever seen God, okay? The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus is at the Father's side. So Jesus is the only God, and he, who's he? He is the one who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made himself known. Jesus, being God, has revealed himself to be God, and he's the one making himself be known. Again, pointing to the preeminence and power and majesty of Jesus Christ. So, let's pray and we're going to get into it a little bit deeper. Lord, we need you to help us focus. We need you to help. Uh, we, we corporately need you to help me speak the things I'm supposed to speak and hold back the things that I'm not to speak. So God, would you come and help me now and would you help us all be learners and listeners Lord, to what it is that you want to say to us, believing that nothing is on accident and that you are preeminent in all things, that you are in control, we know and we can rest in the fact that we're here for a reason today. September 25th, 2011, we're here on purpose. We may not see it that way. We may think that we're just here. But Lord, would you reveal to us 
the purpose and why we've gathered here today. Speak to us. That would be amazing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so let's go here and spend just a few moments on these verses. And then I think we're going to end up moving somewhere else, okay? So let's look at John 1, 14, just a little bit more. Okay, and in these passages here, John is referencing Moses several times. Moses, the guy in the Old Testament, okay? And, and he was a big deal, okay? Moses was worshipped by so many people. Um, I mean, he's... In Judaism, it really gets no bigger than Moses right now. John wants the audience here to get a picture of Jesus that is bigger than John the Baptist. That's why he referenced him in the first 14 verses. And now bigger than Moses, as these next four verses are here. Okay, so that's why we're going to end up moving. We're going to be end up moving into the Old Testament with Moses to see exactly what he's getting at here. Okay, it's going to help us understand these four verses, four or five verses. Okay, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of this incredible balance of grace and truth, not compromising either one. Certainly John saw the glory of God. He saw him in the flesh. He saw him do miracles. He, he saw him with his very eyes on the cross as he was there kneeling beside Jesus' mother, he saw him die. He, he saw him <laughs> beat death. He was there. He ran in and began to look around the tomb and noticed that it was empty. And he began to prophesy and to preach and teach about this Jesus. And then, behold, all of a sudden they're out fishing and they look on the shore. And John is the one who says, that is Jesus on the shore. And that's when our good friend Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to Jesus, or however he would meander through the water towards Jesus. John is the one who saw Jesus, the transfiguration, the ascension, when he left this world and ascended to the Father. He was there to see these things personally. So certainly he has seen his glory, but he's getting at something even bigger than just who Jesus was here. He's looking at something more cosmic, something at a greater level. Verse 15. Again, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before him because he was before me. This is John the Baptist alluding to the preeminence of Christ. He ranks before me. He's talking about how that Christ lived in eternity past, before all things, in fellowship with the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, when he says that he was before me. And then verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This fullness here is pointing to Christ being the fullness of God in the flesh from Colossians 2.9. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily or physically. 
John is actually saying here this grace upon grace is grace after grace. Grace that replaces the previous grace. Grace that supersedes the initial installment of the first grace. He's saying, yes, the law was gracious in that it brought us the sacrificial system. It brought us a way to have peace with God. It brought us a way, though, though definitely it fell short and completely uh, rendering us redeemed. That's why Christ had to come. It was still a gracious act of God to reach down to us through Moses and give us these laws, to give us the Ten Commandments, to give us a sacrificial system, the priestly system, the cleanness the foods, all these different laws, hundreds. It was an act of grace for God to extend this to us. But then even more so, grace layered upon grace when Christ came and fulfilled the law that we could never, ever meet up perfectly on, as we'll see. So Christ comes in as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Christ himself. So these installments of the first grace, which was the Mosaic law, pointed us to Jesus. It pointed us to the Messiah. So it was a very gracious thing for God to do this. But as Christ comes as the Messiah himself in the flesh, the one who nullified any need for further sacrifices by becoming a sacrifice himself, that is grace upon grace. Consider Hebrews 10. Hang with me here. Okay? For since the law has but a shadow, the law being the the Mosaic law that I just referenced, the first initial installment of grace, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the first installment of law was insufficient for us to be perfect. Otherwise... They, not have, they would have not had ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is Jesus' words here, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, in in the law, in the Old Testament. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Here's what all this is meaning. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's no more need for multiple sacrifices. Christ was sufficient here. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
Believe it or not, this is still Hebrews, if you're not following with me, okay? But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, meaning himself, he sat down at the right hand of God, basically personifying there that it is finished, he's sitting down, his work is done, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The big picture is Jesus Christ came to fulfill where the law, the, the first installment of grace, fell short. He came to complete for us, to perfect us, to perfect our hope, to where we don't have to continually work through these sacrifices and work through all these things, but he did it for us so now we can live in freedom. We can live in true grace and, and peace, not having to worry This is such a comfort. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You heard my brief little commentary about that as we were going through it. So this is cloudy, okay? I get this. When I studied this, I was like, I don't get it. And Jacob and I were struggling through this, and he said, let's look at Exodus 33. So we went to Exodus 33, and it made so much more sense. So, because this is what he's referencing here in these four or five verses. So go to Exodus 33. It's towards the beginning of your Bible. Genesis is the first book. Exodus is the second. Go there with me, please. Exodus 33. And here's some context for where we're going here. Moses had just received the Ten Commandments. He had also received... Hundreds of laws that pertain to how the priest should walk, dress, act, how, they, how the, the foods are certain foods here, and stay away from these and eat these. And, and if you do this, then you're supposed to perform this. And if, if this happens, then this is the type of sacrifice here. Here's a peace offering. Here's a sin offering. Here's a transgression offering. You know, like it's, just, it's layers and layers and layers of these laws, these rules that were given to him for his good so that he could help atone for the sin of their people through these sacrifices. Okay, so when he's up there hearing from God, and the Lord himself actually wrote the Ten Commandments on these tablets, he walks down and shows them to the people. He's like, look, this is our God, our Redeemer, the one who brought us out from Egypt and the tyranny we were suffering. He's the one that has now written this for us. And he looks out across the people, expecting, yes, let's worship him. He is our God. And they're bowing down and worshiping a golden calf that they had formed by taking their gold jewelry and forming into the shape of a cow to bow down and worship it. And they were bringing sacrifices to it. Moses takes the tablets and throws them on the rock. And they break. And in his anger, he goes and, and finds out from Aaron what is going on. He goes back to God and intercedes for them on their behalf. Say, God, don't destroy them. And it's in this moment that we have Exodus 33. Let's read this together. Here we go. Uh, Exodus 33, starting in verse 18. And the Lord said to Moses... This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. 
This is speaking to the identity of Moses. He says that he has known, he is known by the Lord, and he has been graciously favored. This was nothing that Moses earned. This is grace. God having favor on Moses. Moses said, basically in in response to what do you want me to do? I'll, I'll do anything. And this was the one thing that he responded back. Lord, please show me your glory. And this is something I've been really struggling with all week with this text. Because I know for a fact that if, if I were to have one wish, as it may, you may look at this as one wish from the Lord, what I would ask for. I think you're about 25 different things, if not 125 things, if not 25,000 things that I would list personally before I said, I want to see your glory. There's a list of things that I would ask of God before I would sim. I'm just being honest, before I would just say, show me your glory. So there was something so significant about this that I, I really began to appreciate for Moses and the glory of God in, in the study this week. But just, I mean, just aside from this, if you were asked one thing that you would have, what would that be? If God could give you anything, would it be close to this? Maybe after our time together and you see the importance here, maybe that would be somewhere near the top. And he said, I will make all my goodness. I'll make, I mean, I'll I'll just flex for you here a second. I will show you who I am. I will amaze you with me. All my goodness. And it will pass before you. All my greatness, all my goodness will pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. It's not him declaring that he's the Lord. It's his goodness that's going to flow out from him in his glory, in his majesty, that's going to declare the Lord. That's special. Okay? I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is speaking to God declaring himself to be sovereign. He's declaring that no one deserves mercy, no one deserves grace, no one ever deserves to see my glory. I'm the one who chooses to do these things. I'm God. But then he goes on further. You cannot see my face. The compassion in him wanting Moses to stay alive. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. As he passes in front of him, he's like, you're about to, your mind is about to be blown. You're gonna, you're gonna, your mind's going to be blown so much that you're going to die. Like, this is about to happen, Moses. You wanted this, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to see me, and you're going to pass away. You won't be able to live with my greatness. And the Lord said, behold, look. Behold, that means look. There is a place by me where you will stand on the rock. 
And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Man, can you imagine this? Can you imagine this moment of actually being face to face or face to back with God or face to presence with God and, and him saying one wish, you say, I want to see your glory. He's like, well, if that happens, you're die. I mean, flat out, you're gone. Oh, okay. Uh, can I recant? Can I, can I, number two, can I ask for another question? Can I, can I have something else? He's like, no, no, your glory, you're going to see my glory, but, but no one can actually see me in my fullness and live. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you, see this rock over here? Hide behind that, and I'm going to cover you with my hand. And when I move by and move my hand away, look at me. Yeah. Then you'll know I'm the Lord. Scripture tells us that those who are in Christ will, in fact, one day see God face to face. And when we see God face to face, we will see him as he is. And we will be like him. This is what scripture tells us. In that moment, when you are face to face with God, all of your heart's longings will be satisfied fully and completely as you look at him, as you behold him. And I know it's hard to understand because we don't really get this depth of this majesty. But it's a type of thing that when you see it, you fall on your face in worship. It just happens. It's something that we don't know there's nothing to compare this to. Every, every earthly illustration of trying to paint you this picture falls short. It doesn't even come close. Like I said last week, even, even the most grand thoughts that we have of Christ are still an insult because he's so much better than we can even comprehend. This glory, I wish I could paint a picture for myself. I wish I could, I could try to, with my words, phrase something that makes something in us be like, wow, I want to see that glory. But it's just of such magnitude that there's simply not words. It's, it's as Jesus himself, as God here dealing with Moses, says, I'm going to move before you. I'm not even going to use words, but you will hear, I'm. It's that epic. It is that magnificent. You will know, Moses. When I pass before you, you will know who I am. But still not looking at his face. But those who are in Christ will one day be able to behold him in his splendor. It is there as we see him. To those who are in Christ and we see him, it is there that we get the feeling of being satisfied that we have sought after our entire lives here on earth. It's that niche. It's, yes, this is it. You will only be satisfied by the glory 
of the Lord. And to experience the glory of God is like heaven. And Moses must have known this as he asked to see the glory of God. Why not just get us to your promised land that you've been talking about? Why not answer that? Why not help us, help us have all the food and water that we need? How about take care of the AIDS and cancer in, in the children of Israel? Like, he knew something was special about the glory of God, the majesty. And perhaps this is one of our greatest needs today. In September 25th, 2011, in our culture today, we have so personalized God. We've tried to make him seem so tangible and so easy to understand and comprehend that we have in our way of trying to make him easy to grasp, we have deluded his epicness, his splendor, his majesty. Perhaps this is why we're told not to make any type of image of him. Because then we will associate God with that rather than just letting our imaginations get to a point where they just go and fizz out. Like when you try to comprehend eternity or the greatest number. You just try to keep going. going. It's like, oh, it's got to stop. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. When's the last time you were in Scripture and you were just in worship of the God of the world and the Savior of your soul? And you were just like, oh, this is just too much. I just can't do this. This is... And you come outside of your room and your roommates are like, dude, what's wrong with you? are like, I just need to go walk. Oh, my gosh. Did you okay? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm wrecked. This is crazy. Instead of being the theological type, which I'm very prone to do this, where we just say, here's God, here's the box, here's the lid. That's, yeah, that's him. He's, he's, he's takeable. You just take him anywhere. He's so convenient. You can show him to anybody. Marginalized. We should pray, I believe, for us to be able to know and see the glory of God. That would be special. If we would actually pray, instead of, not that these needs and different things are wrong, pray at the top of your list that we would see the glory of God. That that would, that would be the all-encompassing vision of our lives. What do you want to do with your life? I want to see the glory of God. And that's on my resume. My objective is to live in such a way that I get to one day experience him in all his splendor and glory. That's my life. This would be special. And I believe Moses knew this. And the Lord agreed to give him his request. But first, he had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. This way, he would be able to see the glory of God and live. This is beautiful. A careful study of this passage of Scripture, along with John 1, 14 through 18, among so many others, reveals that this cleft in the rock is a picture of Jesus Christ. You see, the cleft provided the means for Moses to see the very glory of God and live. The truth of the gospel 
is there's a greater cleft in the rock than Moses experienced. And that's Jesus. The Bible teaches that God is a spirit and no man can see the Father. It is only in Jesus Christ that we can see God because he is, in fact, God made manifest in the flesh. Consider Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Sounds a lot like John 1, doesn't it? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is a being worth worshiping. The fullness of God. The, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2.9. John 14.9 says that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to know God the Father, you must come through Christ, his Son. John 14.6, remember? He says, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So in order to see the Lord's glory, we must first be hidden in Christ, identified with Christ. There is absolutely no other way. And it is when we come to Jesus for salvation that we are then placed in Christ forever. And no one and no thing can ever separate us from his love. It's an amazing exchange. The separation that was divided because of our sin, that no one and no thing could ever reconcile that separation, through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, he has now ruined that separation by becoming the once and for all sacrifice to where now there's peace. The hostility is gone. The separation is finished. And now there's reconciliation. Such reconciliation that no one or no thing could ever cause that to cease. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the very face of Jesus Christ. You see... Because he is holy, God cannot look at sin. It's true. Consider Isaiah 59.2. Your sin, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Wow. Rather hopeless. This separation is death. This is hopelessness. Regardless of how good you may think you are, unless your sin has been atoned by Jesus Christ on the cross, you will not experience eternal life. You will only experience this continued separation from God throughout all eternity. And the Bible considers that concept hell. 
That separation is hell. God's holiness demands that sinners be separated from him. He cannot tolerate evil in his presence. This is why Jesus Christ came to earth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Is so that he could take care of this separation. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous being Christ for the unrighteous being everybody else that he might bring us to God, that Jesus might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. When you turn to Jesus for your salvation, for your hope, for your redemption, the Father gives, forgives you of your sin by punishing Christ for your sin, resulting in you being hidden in Christ, the rock, then you are no longer separated. Then you become an adopted child of the king of the universe. Christian, this is your source of joy. Christian, this is how we face uncertain tomorrows. Because this is our hope. This is our peace. Regardless of what happens to our freedoms, regardless of what happens to our money, regardless of what happens to our blood cells, Regardless of what happens to our families, regardless of what happens to our country, regardless of what happens to our world, there is still source of hope found in Christ. That is the hope of the gospel. And you can't find that anywhere else. You can't find it anywhere else. So I have a question for myself and for all of us. Are we truly hidden in Christ right now, in Christ this morning? Do you see yourself as being shielded by the hand of God, placed strategically in the cleft of the rock, being Jesus Christ, hidden in Christ, so that now you will see the glory of God definitely much greater one day in heaven when you are face to face with him and you'll be known by him and you will be like him but you know that's your story. You know that's your future. What a comfort that is. Are you trusting in Jesus' payment and sacrifice for your sin? Are you hidden in the cleft of the rock? There is no other substitute for your sin. There is no substitute for this cleft in the rock other than Jesus Christ. You can be a great person. That's an insufficient cleft in the rock. You can have a lot of money. That's an insufficient cleft of the rock. You can have great cars and homes, and that's an insufficient cleft in the rock. It is only in Jesus Christ where you find the sufficient substitute and deliverer and hope giver and redeemer. And we, we don't believe that. If we believe that, we would stop wearing ourselves out to try to keep up with the next guy. We would stop wearing ourselves out over guilt. We would stop wearing ourselves out over these possessions of longing for these things. 
Are these things bad? No, they're not bad. But the search for those things, for us to find our identity in those things, and to feel crushed when we don't match up to this guy or that girl, our hope is not in Jesus Christ in that moment. That is what we don't believe. May God show us his glory, and may we see that there are no substitutes for clefts in the rock. Two big takeaways for me today. The Bible consistently and repeatedly teaches that once this earthly life is over, we will all stand before God. Those who are in Christ will live eternally. Those who are not in Christ will die eternally because you cannot see God and live. You must be hidden in the cleft of the rock who is Jesus Christ. Do you see Christ as your cleft in the rock this morning? Do you see him as your salvation and your hope and redeemer? My prayer for you this morning is that you would stop the pursuit of finding false clefts in the rock to bring you joy and contentment and peace that only the glory of God can bring, that only salvation in Christ can bring. That you would see him as Savior, as Lord, as more epic than anything else. That he is preeminent. Because we will all know that one day. We will, every one of us, the Bible says, we will all come to a point where we bow down on our knees, everybody, and we admit that he is worthy. That's the truth. Read the end of the Bible. Read Revelation. We're all there. Hitler, Napoleon, Bin Laden, Jeremy, Jacob, we're all there, good and bad, every one of us on our knees. For some, it's just the beginning of such a worshipful experience. For others, they've seen the glory of God. Christ is not their substitute to hide them and atone for their sin, and they die eternally. I don't know if the gospel this morning could be more simple and the truths and the objective realities of the truth can be presented. This is why Jesus came. So that you could live here and live forever. Would you trust him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you for the hope that we do have in your gospel and the truths that we have in your scripture. Lord, and who you are in your just your, your greatness, your majesty, all these words that are so reserved for things that are grand, Lord, still fall so short. And gosh, it's, it's, it's like throwing pennies at a mansion wanting to be able to pay for it. It's just so small of what we can offer in words. But God, that is who you are. You are just more than words. You, you are better than what we can express. 
And yet you move towards us. And the only thing you ask of us is to admit our need and see you as the the meter and the deliverer and the redeemer of that need. Would we run to you today? Lord, would those who are in you, who are found in Christ this morning, that know the future of their lives, they're going to be safe and secure forever in your arms, would they be brought to repentance right now in this moment for pursuing other ways of trying to find their identity? Other false saviors, would you, Lord, help them through this? Would you reveal this to them and bring them to repentance? And Lord, for the ones that are outside of you this morning, would they run to you? Would they run to you? Say, God, I do want to be able to see you face to face, and I do want to live. Hide me in Christ. Hide me in your Son, the one who died on the cross for my sin. He is Savior. He is Lord. And I see this today. Lord, may this be the posture of our hearts, every one of us, in repentance for different things. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us and pursuing us. In Christ's name, amen.